Hey everybody, welcome to the newest episode of On That Note with Parker Whirling. Today's guest joins me from Montreal, Canada. She's an alternative rock singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer who put out a new album called Motherhood back in August of 2020. Before we get the interview started, please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And on that note, please welcome No Joy. Awesome. Well, thank you, No Joy, for joining me on an episode of On That Note with Parker Whirling. You uh, released an album, Motherhood, uh, in August 21st, 2020. It's an awesome album, and everybody who's listening needs to go check it out. It's very shoegazy and and electronic, and you, you blend so many elements into it. It's such a wild ride of an album. My first question is, uh, why did it take five years to get a new No Joy album? The last one you put out was in 2015. Um, after 2015, I kind of wanted to, we were doing a lot of touring and a lot of, um, it was just this thing where you like put out a record, then you tour forever, then you write the next one, you put it out, you tour forever. And we had been touring for so much time that I wanted to take a, a step back and kind of understand the music industry more and get an idea of like what was next because I kind of felt like we had done everything we could do as a full band. Um, so then in the five years, kind of just did EPs very differently, trying to learn like different ways of recording, different ways of writing. So some of those we recorded um, remotely, some we recorded together in a different studio. Uh, and then one I did with Pete Kimber, who's Sonic Boom, that we did like very differently with, you know, so I was just trying to like experiment and see which process I would want to use if I was going to do a, a full length. Um, and that's so that's why it took five years <laughs> trying to learn. That's a great reason to uh, to take some time off. So what did you learn? What were some really uh, key pieces of information that hit you within those five years that allowed you to push this album out? Um, I learned that I like to write songs and then sit with them for a while before recording them like let them simmer sit with them for a while sit with the demos see if you really like them because it's easy to get excited about something in the studio and then you take it back and you're like Ugh, that sucked <laughs> we were just having fun and it sounded cool at the time but it actually sucks so with these songs George Elbrecht and I wrote them uh you know some were demos from you know five years ago that I had just sitting around and then we kind of sat down with the ones that we really liked started fleshing them out and then waited you know six or seven months before we got to the studio so we really knew those were the ones that we wanted to record so I think that's probably the most important thing I learned was just like take your time and be committed to the song don't just like track everything you know demoing everything is fine but going in and really putting something like a full length together you want to make sure that every you're in love with like every element of it Right. I saw that you started the recording process or at least the writing process for this over two years ago. So that's kind of cool that uh, it just makes sense that you you say that. Were there any songs that maybe gave you more trouble or, or like I've had this conversation with people where, you know, you start a song and you feel really good about it. But the longer you can have it, it's almost like you might lose that spark the more you keep trying to work on it. So were there any songs that were like that for you? And if so, how did you kind of work around that? Yeah, I think that that's something I've experienced throughout recording and that there's sometimes your your original demo has the magic. And then when you try and re-record it or 
flesh it out. It's just you never capture that whatever it is in your first demo. Um, so I, I've learned to stop fighting against that and just include your demo. Like if like on Motherhood, some of the vocals, um, a lot of the sounds are from the demo because it was like, you know, the first take I did on vocals was the best one, even though I spent days and days and days trying to perfect it. It was actually the demo one that was better than all the other ones. So, and it keeps that sort of magic. I don't know why. I've I've done that before, where you try and re-record a song that the demo version you you really like, but then the final product is like you kind of prefer the demo to the studio recording. So now I try and bring the demo into the studio. Very smart. Yeah, that could be so frustrating to to feel like you're so stoked about this song, and then you're like. Well, you know, it, it's got some some good parts to it, but I do need to re-record it. And then you start the re-recording process, and you're like, I'm not even close to as excited as I was. You know, that's really that's really cool. You got to do that, and it's also really cool that you got to work on this album a little bit with your sister, Alyssa, yeah. who yeah. Uh, provided some background screaming vocals for the second track. How was how was that experience working with her? It was great. I mean, we never worked together before, which was so silly. We, we'd sometimes like run into each other if we were in the same city on tour, but we've never performed together with with our current. I mean, we've done like shows when we were kids, like to, for our parents and stuff, but we've never like played our music together. Um, and it was just it just happened that when we were recording, she was off cycle with her band. So she was at in Montreal at home. So I was like, OK, well, we got to get you on this track. And then um because of COVID, uh, her travel plans were delayed. So she was actually in town where I was. So we we're like, okay, we'll do a video together. So it it just kind of worked out timing and um, was great. She's such a pro. It's like recording vocals for me literally takes like months and months and months. And I'm just like, ah. and her, she's just like one take, such a pro, pitch perfect, amazing. So it was, it was really fun um, watching her like do her thing and her scream <laughs> that's so cool yeah yeah that scream like especially after uh after the first song like yeah. you, you you have this i wouldn't call it mellow song but you're you're on a wave you know what i mean you're riding a wave and then that second one comes in and she just starts like screaming and it's totally uh it just like lifts you up you're like okay here we go did yeah. you whose idea was that to do the scream was it gonna be was it always gonna be a scream or were you uh yeah asking for like you know singing type vocals yeah yeah um she she sings also but it's so buried it's kind of in the mix of things so it sounds sort of like just I don't know like a synth or something because it's really buried but um I always wanted her to scream on something I I it just felt like the I don't know. This was like our most metal song, so it kind of mm -hmm. felt like it made it made sense. Yeah, it does. And uh, I saw that on a Facebook post, you had answered somebody's question saying that four was your favorite song from the album. Uh, is that still true? And if so, what about it makes it your favorite? I mean, they're all they're all my favorite. Obviously, um, I love them all in different ways. Four was just a song that was like, you know, this record was a big change and like trying new stuff and pushing myself. And that song, when we were writing it, like it, if you heard the original demo, it like does not sound the same at all. There's parts of it, like the piano that's still the same. But George and I, we really took it and we're like, 
let's do it. And it was one of those moments where I don't really remember what happened, but then all of a sudden there was like baby sounds and <laughs> DJ scratches and we're like, yep, okay. Um, it was just a, a very free creative moment that I felt like paid off and the final version is like as cool as it was sounding in my head, so. Yeah, I think that seems to be a pretty general consensus from artists that their favorite song is either A, tied in with their experience of actually writing and recording it, or B, uh, it's because it turned out very close to how they had it in their head. That's something that maybe not most people think about or understand is like, you have this idea in your head, this perfect vision of what it should be. And the work is like really, you know, taking that and making it a reality. And and uh, most times you change up a lot of things like it doesn't end up the way you imagined it and that can be good or it can be like frustrating because you really wanted to hit that mark but that's cool for you that the first or your favorite song is the one that kind of hit that mark like spot on yeah it was also the one that I was the most like this is either gonna go really good or really bad like I don't know but let's try it and and then it worked so it uh yeah it definitely paid off. It's it has like this '90s trip hop groove, but there's so much of a buildup going into it. You're like, "What the fuck is about to happen?" And then it finally <laughs> drops, and you're like, "Okay, yeah. okay, we're riding the wave now." Yeah. <laughs> so I've got to ask you about touring with Baths because my uh, my friend and previous on that note guest Bobby Rethwish is a huge fan, and uh, he'd be really mad at me if I found out if he found out that I had a guest who toured with Baths and I didn't ask (laughs) about it. So uh, how was that experience? And uh, was there anything you learned on that tour? Yeah. I mean, it's funny that tour came back into like conversation because it was part of a very popular meme last week. (laughs) Um, The Bernie Sanders at the merch table. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that too. (laughs) It's from the Baths tour. They just like swapped Will out and put Bernie in. (laughs) Um, so Will's been a, a very, very dear friend of mine for a long time. And, and it was like just something we always wanted to play together. And, and um, the timing just happened then. Um, just the sweetest and most talented and charismatic person. Like, I don't even, I don't know. I've never seen him have like in a bad mood. He's just the most positive, great person and just such a virtuoso with sound that it made me feel kind of like, whoa. I was learning a lot every day just watching him and Mo just like do their thing. It was incredible. So it's always nice to go on tour with the with a pal, you know? Yeah, that's true. Going on tour with somebody who's actually a, a genuine friend. And he he has such a way with, with soundscapes and just creating uh, textures. Do you have anyone that you look up to uh, when it comes to, you know, creating a sonic landscape? I think it, it comes from different places. I would say probably the two that are consistent forever are um, Nine Inch Nails. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, are, I see yeah. that. Um, they're forever one of my favorites because they just have this ability to compose songs that are like he- heavy and soft at the same time and sad and happy at the same time. Or like they, they have these conflicting moments that are something that it builds tension and it's something that I really look for in songs um and then I would say Boards of Canada for sure are one that I just Mm. feel like create these 
emotional soundscapes that you're just like, how the hell are they doing this? And I've listened to those, both those artists like on a loop consistently since I was a kid, probably a teenager. So I think those would probably be the two that I go back to the most. Very cool. I used to listen to Nine Inch Nails constantly my, my senior year of high school. That's when I discovered the downward spiral, and that was that was it for me. I mean, it was a downward spiral, and I just got <laughs> oh, like no. all into Trent's <laughs> stuff. A good downward spiral. Yeah. yeah. Um, Boards of Canada, though, that is a really interesting choice. I've listened to them here and there, and it wasn't until maybe not even a month ago that I kind of felt like I was in this electronic phase in a way. And I was like, maybe I should go back to Boards of Canada, uh, their album, Music Has the Right to Children. Yeah. Oh my I was God. like, this shit is fire. Like, <laughs> the production is ridiculous. But It's it, ridiculous. It's. It was hard for me at first, I think, to get into that kind of world because it takes a little bit of maturity to just, like, sit down and really appreciate all the little things that are going on because it's not like yeah. there's lead vocal melodies or anything. Yeah. I think those, those artists are... Um, like I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, like headphone music. Like I like to hear the little things and be like, what instrument is that, or how do they do that, or what do they? And I mean, boards of Canada. I have I have no idea who they are. I don't even know what they they're doing. And it's like always so like what? There's no like live videos where you can you know pick it apart and be like, oh, they did that, they did that. Um, and and same for Nine Inch Nails too. And it's like you're watching, um, especially like. I would say even later, later, um, Nin, where you've got like Alessandro Cortini and Atticus Ross, and you're just like, what are they doing? Because they're just building these soundscapes around like a traditional rock band setup, and it's just like, uh, it's great. <laughs> it's overwhelming in a good way. Yeah, yeah, in a good way. So uh, last little thing I want to talk about before we move on to the last five is uh, Joyful Noise, which is the record label that you are signed to. I've talked with a good amount of artists on this show, some are with labels and some are not. So I always like to pick the brains of people who are on labels to ask, you know, what do you like about being on a label? What do you not like? Uh, how do you enjoy being with the label you're with? And for people who are looking to be with a label or are in talks with being with a label, what kind of advice would you give them uh, to like look out for when it comes to that stuff? Um, I think I I made music before No Joy and I didn't have labels and then I did have labels. And then even in this five year break between More Faithful and uh, Motherhood, I put out music on all different labels, uh, big, small, whatever. I think the, the thing I would recommend to anyone is to just um, do it yourself, like just know what you're doing, because then you'll know if you need a label because you don't always really need a label. It's not the 80s where you're going to get like, you know, $2 million advance to like <laughs> do your record. Like music industry is always changing. It's hard to kind of understand what's going on. I don't even understand what's going on most of the time. Um, but I think in my experience with recording and with touring, like taking control of stuff and learning and asking questions always helped me better understand what I really needed. If I needed a label, if I needed a booking agent, if I needed these things. Um, so Joyful Noise are, it's really so funny but the jess who's the anr at joyful noise she, i've known her for probably a decade she booked my band at south by in like 2011 um so our paths had like always kind of crossed and then 
Um, for the Sonic Boom EP, it was kind of like a more experimental record that didn't, I wasn't really sure where it should go in the world because it wasn't, it was like an experiment, you know? So uh, Joyful and Rays are really open-minded. They love all kinds of music. They love, you know, it, it's not really genre specific. It's it's really open and kind of artist run almost. So um, so then I, I linked back up with Jess for that record and then we just kept we kept chatting till it was time for this one. <laughs> Great advice about doing it yourself because I, I know a lot of people who uh, would think, you know, you sign with a label and all of a sudden you're going to be shooting to the stars. And that's just not really the case, especially not anymore. And more and more there be, there are artists who are getting huge from not having a label. Like a few years ago, Chance the Rapper won a Grammy for his album and had no label that he released it on. So it just seems like we're seeing more and more that you can do almost everything by yourself. But that's good to think about a label in a way as what can they do that I can't do? Maybe you're not as good about marketing and advertising and that kind of help is important. For sure. Yeah. It's always once you know what the sort of like environment of the music industry is you can sort of and how you fit in it you can sort of find where you do need help and then there's always things like you know marketing digital marketing there are ways to do it yourself too you don't necessarily need a label in some ways it might be detrimental and you'll you'll be making less money than putting it up on Bandcamp. so it's kind of you know you got each artist has to sort of see what's best for them and not necessarily think that like you know it's because there's this weird gatekeepy thing where like it's hard to get to a label. So once you do get there, you're like, I got to take this opportunity. But I, I actually don't think that's not every artist is the same. So some artists don't need a label and some do. And it's about figuring out what kind of artist you are and just making the right decision. Exactly. Great advice. Well, that's <laughs> going to transition us over to the last five where I'll just ask you five quick questions and then we'll be done. Cool. All right. Number one is in the studio or playing live. so hard because I'm currently in the studio which I love oh so different so different I can't compare I haven't played live really in a long time because there's no touring right now so I'm gonna say playing live just because it's something I miss and would normally have done a lot of but haven't yet so. I enjoy asking that one because it's pretty 50 <laughs> 50 like everybody yeah. like has a great answer for either or and some people just yeah. have to say both they're like I can't pick I mean, I'll probably say both then. <laughs> if I can say both, I'll say both. There you go. Yeah. I love the studio because you get to kind of create something that doesn't exist yet, as opposed to a tour where you do get that energy and that feedback that you've been wanting for a long time that you don't get in the studio. But something about that exploratory phase of creation is something I really enjoy about the studio. Yeah, definitely. I agree. <laughs> So question number two is, what is a perfect album front to back? Ooh, like an example or, or like your, what it is? Like for you, like what is like to you a perfect album front to back? Um, A perfect album is one that like, you know, like you're, you're driving your car, you're listening to the album. You're like, this is so good. Oh, I'm almost home. I'm going to like drive a little further away just so I can finish the record and then come home that's like a perfect album where you're just like I need to hear the whole thing again and again interesting so far you're the only one who's uh actually described what makes a perfect album as opposed to giving examples of 
like actual albums that you think are perfect? There's so many. There's yeah. so many. <laughs> Could you name one or two from, you know, just off the top of your head that oh you gosh. would say are very I'm influential perfect. to you and that you think are perfect? Wow. Oh my God. There's so many. I don't even know where I would start a perfect album. Jeez. I don't know. There's, there's, I don't even know where I would start on it. <laughs> there's so many, there's so many that it's like, I can just remember, I can't picture the albums cause there were so many going in my head, but I just remember moments like going for a walk and then the record only being halfway done. So like walking around a bit more so I could finish the album or driving a bit more. Um, but there, there's just too many. There's yeah. too many. Well, yeah. hey, I'm not going to press you on it because that's a pretty great answer. Nobody's given an answer like that yet. So let's leave it there. I like it. Okay. <laughs> Question number three is who's a dream artist or producer to work with? Oh, George Albrecht, hands down. He's the, he's, I work with him and I, I would, I cannot say that anyone else has like influenced me in terms of production or taught me as much in production and mixing and arrangement and writing as much as George. He's like a sonic. Wow. That's a great, great answer. George Elbrecht, that's his name? Yes. Yes. Cool. He's, he did uh, Motherhood with uh, with my me and then he's done More Faithful and Way to Pleasure and Records in Between and has his own music. And it's just he's the one person that when I say like, uh, can we make it sound like more fluffy and pink? He'll be like, OK, you mean this? And like he gets it. <laughs> We just we really work well together, so he's that, my number one. That chemistry yeah. is so important. Yeah. I've talked with a few people that literally say the exact same thing of like, oh, I just I want this to sound like little the bubbles going on, yeah. and yeah, the other yeah. one's like, I got you, like no problem. Yeah. That's exactly. so cool to be able to have somebody translate that kind of energy into a reality. Yeah, I think it happens when you're like I I'm not the most tech savvy mixer arranger. I I can do it, but like he's so good at the songwriting and the creation and the tech side that it just is a perfect uh, it's a perfect balance awesome george elbrecht everyone's got to go yes. check him out go listen it's so good what's it called <laughs> um he has a ton of music he's got uh his own record that came out under his name george elbrecht um but he he releases all kinds of music because he's so prolific he has like a metal band called coral cross then he's got like his like hard new wave stuff and then he he has violins which was his like i guess shoegaze band from uh maybe a decade ago and then lansing dryden which is like his uh you know masterpiece records <laughs> from the early 2000s so there's a lot there's a lot to dig into but it's all different kinds of music and um really just goes to show like how versatile he is cool with sound i'll have to do a deep dive and maybe yeah. you can send me a link or two to his yeah, stuff after definitely. the interview yeah awesome well number four is what's on your musical rotation right now uh right now i mean honestly i've just been listening to the stuff that i'm tracking on a loop yeah <laughs> which i can't say so um that's all i've been listening to because i don't really like to when i'm recording something or creating something i don't like to listen to other things that might inform my creative decision so it like so i subconsciously copy something you know um so i haven't been listening to much <laughs> so much i've been listening to like hockey games on the radio um interesting <laughs> but right now i've been kind of just trying to focus on recording this before this there was lots of stuff i was listening to um the helena deland record that came out i really loved that a lot 
um yeah there's there's the Shamir record that came out this year I listened to that on a loop so there's been a ton of stuff but when I whenever I'm in the studio like trying to create new stuff I want to try and stay away from accidentally like having a hook in my head because I listened to the song three days ago and then coming in the studio and pretending it's mine so yeah trying try and go in with like an, a clean no idea brain <laughs> I I feel like even if I try to do that it would be it would be hard for me to but I kind of get that like once you have a song that you're working on that kind of becomes your obsession and just the idea of wanting to listen to anything else kind of just dissipates yeah I end up listening to it like when I'm tracking it then on when I leave, if I go for a walk, if I drive around in the car, different headphones, playing in big speakers, little speakers. So I try and listen so many ways. It gets like, like the songs on Motherhood I've heard like probably more times than any other song in the world. Right. Because <laughs> I listen to them so many times. Um, and I just get kind of like obsessive when I'm doing something. So. Gotcha. Well, great answer. Final question here before we leave is uh, what is the next piece of equipment on your wish list? That's a good question. Uh, I was looking into different vocal microphones um, because of so much home recording that's happening now. I wanted to have like some variety in that. So definitely been looking into that, looking into <laughs> looking into like a bass guitar because I, I have a really bad bass guitar and I have a baritone guitar. But I was like, what if I get like a sick bass <laughs> for no reason? Because it's like, I, I don't even need it. But I was just looking on like, you know, the deep dives when you're like, ooh, I'm going to look online for like stuff I can't afford to buy. Right yeah, now. But, of course. But that's I was looking at like the Ibanez, like eight string basses being like, this could be kind of sick. I don't know. <laughs> Getting an eight string bass. You're really going into it. Just going, going deep dive, deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> cool well maybe an eight string bass is uh in no joy's future here i hope so or a vocal we'll microphone yeah <laughs> one is way more practical than the other but yeah we'll see <laughs> well who wants who wants practical nobody wants exactly. practical that's why exactly. i've spent hundreds of dollars on guitar pedals <laughs> exactly oh my god i know that's a rabbit hole you yeah. can really go down oh and i have <laughs> <laughs> i feel like yeah. everyone's been there at one point and if you haven't yeah. it's coming up and i'm like I'm like borderline going into my modular synth phase, which I think is uh -oh. right after the guitar pedal. You just kind of like move. You get a little older, you go into the modular synth. So I've toyed a little bit in it, and I'm not good at it at all. But it's it's like it's there. Like that might be the next expensive journey I go on. Yeah, it's certainly expensive, and it seems very complicated. Super complicated. And like not something I'm good at. But maybe... If we're locked down for another year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what I'll get into. You can just tinker around with your modular sense yeah, for a whole that's year. It. It, it might happen. <laughs> it just might. Cool. Well, no joy. Thank you for joining me for an episode of On That Note. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about your creative process behind your album, Motherhood. Everybody needs to go listen to it. It's awesome. Such a crazy journey of uh, shoegaze and, you know, some metal and electronic dance music. It's awesome. Yeah, gotta get the eight-string bass so we could play these songs live. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing that live for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank cool. you again for coming on and joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. No joy. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of On That Note with Parker Whirling. 
If you haven't yet, please make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube and Apple Podcasts, and you can even leave a comment down below to let me know who you're listening to. On that note, I'll see you guys next time.